We turn now to Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 26, the 26th chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah, and I'll read verses 1 and 2. So this is page 227 in the Pew Bible. Isaiah 26, verses 1 and 2. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Open ye the gates, that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Undoubtedly, these verses are one of the the noblest, grandest statements in the Old Testament regarding the security and the blessedness of the one true church of Jesus Christ. Don't imagine the church of Christ began on the day of Pentecost. The church of Jesus Christ has existed from the beginning of time. Hebrews chapter 11 shows us that Abel was in possession of saving faith and lists for us the roll call of the faithful from Old Testament times. So there's a unity between Old Testament and New Testament believers all looking to Christ for salvation. Their faith, of course, in Old Testament times was a prospective faith looking ahead to Christ for salvation whereas ours must be a retrospective faith looking back to the glorious accomplishments that Christ has achieved. There's an interesting book that's recently been republished by Henry Bullinger, the Swiss reformer, and it's entitled The Old Faith. And it's really unanswerable, demonstrating for us that the faith and trust of Old Testament believers was just the same as ours. They were just as much a part of the one true church as believers are in our day and generation. And Isaiah the prophet had this clear and conspicuous view of the wonder and the glory of the one true church. Never let us have little or uh, meager views of the church of Jesus Christ. Don't judge the true church of Christ by what you see by way of local churches because they're very poor reflections of the one true church. Yes, it should be the aspiration of God's people to be more like Christ and be more like the the spiritual glory of the one true church in all ages. But nevertheless, here we have a picture and a description of the church of Christ. And we find the prophet here says in that day, he's looking ahead to the 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 full of glory of the gospel age when Christ will come. And this was the ambition of Old Testament saints. They wanted to see Jesus by faith. They saw him in the word. And they saw him looking to him with living faith. We find the Apostle Peter is very helpful to us in this respect when he tells us in his first letter, first chapter, and at verse 10 he says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So they searched diligently their own writings and one another's writings, and they were learning. They were Bible students like we have to be. And by doing so, they were discovering more of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So there's a unity then between believers today and believers in old time. And uh, we are thankful for this clear revelation of these things here in this chapter. And we gain something of a glimpse of the victory, the final and ultimate victory of the people of God here in this description. 
Don't forget the crossing of the Red Sea. It wasn't just for the deliverance of the people of Israel that were trapped on the shores of that sea. It was a picture of something greater, something better. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11. It was a picture of the, the final deliverance of the people of God. They saw their enemies dead upon the seashore to trouble them no longer. And there were shouts of uh, joys, of songs and victory as they saw themselves being completely delivered. And all this is typical of the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and that victory that we look forward to ultimately. So it's no surprise then that this chapter begins with a song. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. Judah means praise, so in the land of praise. And that's where we have been placed, isn't it? By the grace of God, if we are the Lord's, we've been delivered from being in a state of under the wrath of God and judgment. We've been delivered by God's grace and we're now in a position of our standing in Christ and being secure in him. And therefore, it should be the very natural desire of our hearts to praise him for what he has done. And that's why it's such a good thing to be able to gather with God's people in this way to sing together the songs of Zion. So there's a flowing together to the goodness of God. We're seeing eye to eye regarding our standing in Christ and the blessings he has showered upon us. And our singing by now is singing by faith in anticipation of that heavenly song where there's no weariness, no discordant voices, when everybody is singing from the same hymn sheet, as it were, and everybody feels the same, glorifying the name of Jesus Christ forever and forevermore. So let us then not have little views of the church of Jesus Christ. I want to bring to you four things from these two verses. First of all, we notice a strong city. Secondly, strong defenses. Thirdly, open gates. And fourthly, a people with open hearts. So let us notice, to begin with, we have a strong city. The church of Jesus Christ is no precarious organization. In fact, it's, no, not, it's nothing like any earthly organization. It's unique, absolutely unique. And in that psalm we read earlier, the psalmist says, glorious things are spoken of thee, O Zion, city of our God. And the reason this church of Jesus Christ, this strong city, is strong is because the strength of the church lies in the eternal purposes of God. You can't get stronger than that. It's as strong as God's throne. It's as secure as God's throne. Because God has spoken. He's spoken a message of grace to his people. And it's not a, great, not a message that's going to be uh, revoked. It's a message that will ever stand. So... The strength of this city lies in the purposes of God. His everlasting love, for example. Jeremiah was reminded of this in the midst of his sorrows when he was weeping because Jerusalem wouldn't listen to him. They wouldn't return back to the Lord. They threw him into prison. And in his distresses, the Lord drew near to him and said, I've loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. How many of God's people down through the years have been strengthened with innermost strength on account of a verse like that, to be aware and conscious with the witness of God within of being loved with an everlasting love. His arms are ever about his people individually and collectively. Then you think of the strength 
of God's purposes in respect to the covenant of grace. A blessed compact, a holy agreement made between the persons of the Trinity, whereby God determined that through his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, that every spiritual good might be conveyed. Everything should be provided through him to secure a vast number of people from all nations, kindred, tribes, and people to become the people of God and to be secure in him forever. And think of the, the strength of the, the decrees of God. No one can unsay what God says. Not all the forces of man and the forces of unbelief and the rage of hell can ever undo the decrees of God. What God has said must be fulfilled on this firm rock believers build. Now you may be saying to me, well, this is all very well, talking about the strength of the church, but when I look around at churches today, I see elements of weakness, fewness of numbers in many cases, many empty seats, churches a lot, lot smaller than they used to be, and not so many churches in total. You think back to the 19th century, the great church and chapel building era, when there was great advances made for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may say, but we're not like that today. Things are going in the opposite direction, generally speaking. Don't judge the one true church by what you see in respect to local congregations. Because though God's people, many of them being taken home to be with the Lord in glory, they're not lost to the one true church. They've left the church militant to gain a place in the church triumphant. So the church of Jesus Christ is an ever-growing body of believers. So let us remind ourselves of the wonder of being part of this one true church. Yes, this church is under attack by uh, false doctrine, under attack by persecutors seeking to try to eradicate the testimony of God's people, but they will never, never win. Psalm number 2 is very helpful to us on this point where we are reminded that the Lord has set Christ, his king, upon the holy hill of Zion. And there you have ungodly people raging against the Lord and against the Lord's people. But the Lord, as it were, sits on his throne, undisturbed by it. As it were, he laughs at them, has them in derision, because they will achieve nothing in spite of their worst efforts to try and eradicate the testimony of God's people. We have a strong city. So this is the whole body of God's people in view. All that have ever lived in this earth, all are alive at this present time who are the Lord's, and those who are, may yet be born who will become the Lord's people. But there's another reason why we have a strong city, and it's this. Because the king is in command. The king is in command. Strength is not known to God's people because of numbers, but because the Lord himself. Notice verse 4. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. It's one of those grand statements of the Lord and who he is and what he means to his people. He is the leader and commander of his people, and he has purchased his people at immeasurable cost. He laid down his life for every one of his people. It cost him everything he had to save and redeem his people. And he loves them with an everlasting love, as we've noticed already. And his purposes will never, never be defeated. We can illustrate this from an Old Testament example. You think of Hezekiah, 
on the throne in Jerusalem. Sennacherib, the, the mighty king of the Assyrians, came to Jerusalem, assuming it would be an easy victory. After all, he had gained so many other victories. Other cities and towns had fallen just like that. And so he comes arrogantly to the city of Jerusalem and uh, assumes it's going to be uh, easy pickings, you might say. But he didn't realize something of the, the wonder of the God of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a praying man. He knew the Lord. And in spite of all the subtle intrigues of uh, the king of Assyria, God was with his people, and God strengthened them. God enabled them to stand. And Sennacherib was led away like a bull is led away with a hook in its nose. And he lost his life. He was assassinated, even by his own sons. And Hezekiah saw this wonderful victory. The king was in command, this godly king, Hezekiah. And interestingly, the name Hezekiah means strong in the Lord. And he was, wasn't he? And we look higher than Hezekiah. We look to Christ, the heavenly Hezekiah, you might say. He is on the throne. He is in command. And furthermore, we have a strong city because it's built upon an immovable foundation. Nothing less than the rock of ages itself. Notice verse 4 again. For in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. In the margin of your Bible it may say, in the Lord is the rock of ages. That's where that famous phrase comes from, from this verse, the marginal rendering. Here's this immovable rock, this rock of salvation upon which believers build. As John Newton says in his hymn, on the rock of ages founded, who may shake this sure repose? Back in the book of Deuteronomy, in chapter 32, we find Moses challenging the ungodly in Israel. He drew this sharp distinction. He said concerning them, their rock is not as our rock. Even their enemies themselves, they know it, they can see it. And the word rock there, in reference to God's people, it's in a, with a capital R. It's referring to Christ himself. He is the rock of ages. He is the strength of his people. And you know, ungodly people can see, at least to some extent, if there's a foundation to your life. If you're resting upon Christ for salvation, they realize there's something different about you. And even the enemies of Israel could see there's a difference between those who really were trusting in the Lord and those were only trusting by profession only. Well, better foundation can no man lay than is laid, that is, Christ Jesus. So, in spite of the fact that in many parts of the Western world, churches are relatively small, the Lord is working nevertheless in other parts of the world, and there's considerable expansion of the church in countries like Iran and China and elsewhere. Latin America is another example in spite of the, the rage of persecution raised against God's people, we nevertheless have a strong city built upon an immovable foundation. Back in the 1920s and 30s, it became fashionable for journalists and reporters to mock the church. And a comment was made regarding the Christian programs that were being shown on the BBC television. And it was thought, Surely this is not necessary. The church has had its day. That's what they thought. And Lord Reith, who was the first governor-general of the BBC, 
having come from a Presbyterian background, he responded to one of these reporters who was making such comments. He said, sit down, young man. The church will stand at the grave of the BBC. And it certainly will. The church is built upon this firm foundation, Jesus Christ. So we have a strong city. Secondly, we have strong defenses. Now, we are not used to having walled cities, are we? He mentions them here. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. There are still some cities with remains of their original walls. I think Chester is perhaps one of the cities with the most that remains. You can still walk around the top of the walls of that city. Or well, the same is true of parts of Exeter. And even in London near Tower Hill, there's still a part of the old city wall from Roman times. So we're not used to these things in our day, are we? But that was the customary way of keeping themselves protected by having strong defenses and uh, walls and bulwarks. So you had the strong city walls, and then beyond that you had a secondary defense, a bulwark. And that gave the city time, as it were, to raise their standing army to make sure that they could protect themselves and defend the city. And likewise, this illustration is used regarding the one true church. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. And the, the comparison that's found here in this chapter is between Babylon and the city of Moab as well. In comparison, look what happens to them. Verse 5, For he bringeth down them that dwell on high, the lofty city, he layeth it low. He layeth it low even to the ground, he bringeth it even to the dust. Where is Babylon today? Babylon was a tremendous city, one of the great cities of the ancient world, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, famous for its hanging gardens, 48 miles in circumference, walls 300 feet high and 80 feet in depth. It seemed utterly impregnable. But where is Babylon today? And all the boasted power and influence of the ancient world, where is that today? But the church remains strong, nevertheless. God's people remain secure because we have strong defenses. Salvation, God has appointed for walls and bulwarks. So never to be destroyed. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people forever. Now many years ago, there's a preacher by the name of Norman Perry who used to preach sometimes in his pulpit and uh, he wrote a number of poems, some of them quite good. And uh, he wrote one on this subject, Egypt, Babylon and Tyre, rise and flourish and expire. Greece and Rome return to dust, rise they may but fall they must. Britain's proud imperial might sinks forever out of sight. Marx's power disintegrates Time or power annihilates. These all shall perish, stone on stone, but not thy kingdom or thy throne. Well, that was well said, wasn't it? Because it's wonderfully true, in accord with the testimony of God's word here. So let us think a little bit more about these strong defenses. First of all, the Father's choice. God the Father sovereignly has made choice of a vast multitude of men and women, of boys and girls, from every nation under the sun, that they should be his people. And he chose them in Christ. They were given to Christ, as it were, as a gift whereby he, in the fullness of time, must come into this world 
to provide a full salvation for them. So this is one of the, the strong defenses then, the choice of God the Father, the electing love of God the Father. Furthermore, the Son's atoning work, another strong defense, because the devil can never undo what Christ has done. Christ put the devil to an open shame at the cross. It looked like he'd gained a victory. It looked like defeat on behalf of Christ and the people of God. But it was nothing of the sort, because he rose again triumphant on the third day. All that he did was that which met full satisfaction from God the Father. And this is a strong defense, then, for the true church of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, the Spirit's keeping power. So all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the security of God's people. The Father's choice, the Son's atoning work, and the Spirit's keeping power. He it is who has come into your heart and to your life. If we are the Lord's, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And he will never forsake the work of his own hands. He continues to work to keep and to uphold his people in spite of temptation, in spite of persecution, in spite of all the opposition of the kingdom of darkness, God will maintain the faith that he has worked in the hearts of his people. He ensures the righteous shall hold on their way. That's a strong defense, isn't it? It's an encouragement to us all, surely, that we, if we put our trust in Christ, he will never forsake us. He'll never walk away from that which he's done for his people. And the unchanging character of God is another strong defense, isn't it? Where will we be if the Lord was changeable like we are? If he was fickle? If one day he said one thing and the next day revoked it? If you could never really trust what he said, where will we be? But we have a strong defense because he is unchangeable. In fact, we can go further than that and say he's immutable. Which means more than just he doesn't change, it means he cannot change. It's contrary to his very character, he cannot change. He is ever eternally the same. I am the Lord, he says, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Then there's the faithfulness of God, the faithful character of God. His mercies are new every morning and great is his faithfulness. He stands with his people for time and for eternity. Well, no wonder John Newton goes on to say, with salvation's wall surrounded, thou mayest smile at all thy foes. So then, we have a strong city. Secondly, strong defenses. And let me just remind you of a wonderful hymn written by Isaac Watts. He has some beautiful paraphrases on the Psalms, as you may know. And one of them begins like this, Happy the church. Thou sacred place, the seat of thy creator's grace. But he goes on to say this, Thy foes in vain, designs engage, Against his throne in vain they rage, Like rising waves with angry roar, That dash and die upon the shore. Then let our souls in Zion dwell, Nor fear the wrath of men or hell. His arms embrace this happy ground, Like brazen bulwarks built around the security of God's people in Christ. I hope you're being encouraged by this because that's why it's written in the scriptures for us. We might be built up in our faith and be edified by these things and strengthened that we may go, may go on with, as it were, renewed courage and fortitude in the things of God. One of the lesser known hymns of Charles Wesley goes like this, Behold the gospel church secure and founded 
On a rock, all her promises are sure, her bulwarks, who can shock? So then let us settle our hearts at this point. We have a strong city and strong defenses. But thirdly, we notice open gates, and it's here in the imperative form as a command. Open ye the gates. Well, there's a sense in which it's true to say the gate or the door of salvation is already open. Christ himself said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Again, notice the certainty of it. He shall be saved. No if or might be, but they shall be saved. Now, if you were looking for defense, thinking back to times when people fought in ancient times with bows and arrows and hid themselves away in castles, if you were fleeing from the enemy and you saw ahead of you a castle with thick walls, it may look rather formidable, but you'd look for the door, wouldn't you? And having gained an entrance in the doorway and the door being shut securely behind you, those walls now stand as your defense. And sometimes people, when they're seeking for God's salvation, feel that when they hear of election and predestination and all those decrees of God, they feel they stand against them. They feel intimidated by these things. It all seems so formidable. How can I ever possibly gain an entrance into God's blessing, into God's family in this true and strong city? Well, you need to find the door, don't you? And the door is Jesus Christ. And all who come to him gain an entrance. And then you will see that these grand doctrines that seem to stand against you will stand now for your defense and your security and the comfort of your soul. These are filled with godly comfort, aren't they? These doctrines, they're there for our encouragement. You may remember that back in 2016, when the Brexit debate was raging, that the European Union said something like this regarding Britain's status, if it voted to leave, out means out. I presume that's intended to frighten us, but some of us weren't intimidated by that and people voted out. Well, we can turn that around, can't we? We can say concerning this one true church, in means in. There's no going out, eternally secure in Jesus Christ. Now, you may be saying, well, surely this door is open and we don't need to this exhortation anymore, where it says, open ye the gates. What does that mean for you and for me? This is referring to uh, opening the gates in a ministerial sense. There's a responsibility that we have as a church, that we have individually, and especially so in the case of public preachers of the word, to ministerially open the gates. Let me illustrate it in this way. Going back to medieval times, ministerially, the door of salvation was shut tight, wasn't it? Because the church had lost its message. It was now focusing on praying to saints and praying to Mary, worshipping of relics, going on pilgrimages, obeying what the priest told you to do. And uh, that was what, how people were so misguided, weren't they? They were f- overcome with this cloud of darkness and superstition. And the door of salvation wasn't open, wasn't it? Yes, there were a few here and there who saw beyond all these foolish and sinful things and they saw Christ and were saved by Christ. But in a general sense, the door was shut. And then came the glorious Reformation. 
And ministerially, as the gospel was preached and the word of God was read, the door was being opened, wasn't it? And people were being saved in large numbers. And that is the task that we have still today, to open the gates of salvation in that respect. And you may say, well, I don't really feel very qualified to do this. I don't feel I have the gifts to do so. But surely if someone came to you, troubled about their sins, wanting to know how they might be forgiven, you would point them to Jesus, wouldn't you? Well, if that's the case, you are opening the door. You are fulfilling this commission and this command. And even though it may be just a few words here and there from time to time, you are fulfilling this command. It's the same with parents and their children. It's a responsibility to open the gates for them, to show them the way of salvation, to teach them the truth, the way in which Jesus Christ has come to make salvation in his person and his work. This is true for Sunday school teachers. It's true in speaking to people in the town centre. It's true in speaking to people on the doorstep and other opportunities that may open to speak a word regarding the things of God. This is opening the door as the Lord has commanded us to do so. <clears throat> we find that the apostles understood in this way. We find that Peter on the day of Pentecost, opened the door of faith to the Jews, primarily. And then in Acts 10, we read about him open the door of faith to the Gentiles. And then again, we read of the Apostle Paul in Acts 14, going down to Lystra and other places. He testified <clears throat> to the church afterwards. He opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So as these things are proclaimed, as they're explained, and as the word is preached, the door is being opened. We've been given the key of knowledge, the Lord has given us his charge, this responsibility to be faithful to the things that we know regarding the truth. And then, of course, there's the final consummation when God's work on earth will be done and all of his people, called by grace, called into the kingdom, will finally enter together that glorious place that God has provided, that new heaven and new earth. It says in Revelation 22, Blessed are they that keep his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. And that's the prospect, isn't it? The final consummation. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. So we've noticed a strong city and strong defenses. And then thirdly, open gates, and then fourthly, a people with open hearts. Open ye the gates, that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Now, who is this righteous nation? What do you think it could be referring to? Was it referring to Old Testament Israel? Were they a righteous nation? Well, a large number of them were unconverted and unregenerate, weren't they? They still had Egypt in their hearts and were often murmuring and complaining and were unbelieving and very soon got drawn into worldly ways and idolatry. And that was the general pattern of things in Old Testament times. Yes, there was a godly remnant amongst them. As a body of people, generally speaking, you could not call them a righteous nation. So it's not Old Testament Israel. Could it be ethnic Israel today? The Jews who are living in the land of Palestine or Israel and Jews in other parts of the world, is that what it's referring to? Well, are they a righteous nation? The vast majority are still 
in unbelief and reject the very mention of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So this can't be Jews today. So who then is this righteous nation? Is it England? By the sense in which it's true to say there was a time as a nation we were more righteous than we are now when the word of God was recognized as being important and the Ten Commandments were taken as a foundation for upright living and that's gone, isn't it, to a large extent. This is not referring to any particular nation. This is referring to a holy nation, God's people. And the Apostle Peter refers to them as a peculiar people, peculiar to God, special to him. A holy nation, righteous because they are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. A perfect righteousness, not a comparative righteousness, a perfect righteousness that Christ himself has provided. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, when we see this change taking place in people's lives and they become part of this righteous nation. I remember a friend telling me that many years ago he was serving as a police officer in the town of Ipswich and there was a certain publican and a certain public house that was always causing him trouble, more trouble than all the other public houses in the city. And then after a period of several years things changed and one day he was sitting in the pew on a Sunday morning waiting for the service to begin in his place of worship and to his astonishment when the vestry door opened there was that former publican he walked up the pulpit steps to take the service what had happened he'd become part of this righteous nation his eyes had been opened to his sinfulness and his wicked ways and he'd humbled himself before the Lord he'd found forgiveness he'd been clothed with the righteousness of Christ he was now a new man in Christ Jesus and had come to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. What a change. It's the grace of God that makes the difference, isn't it? A people with open hearts. That's what happens, isn't it? God opens our hearts. He makes, gains an access to our hearts that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Truth matters, doesn't it? There's a responsibility upon us to keep the truth, to hold fast to the truth, to search the scriptures, to discover the truth, to follow Christ who is the truth, to be led by the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of truth, to read the word of God which the scriptures of truth. And these things are, in, are important, aren't they? We are to buy the truth, Solomon says, and, and sell it not. It's not up for sale. We are to hold it fast. Truth belongs together. Now, <clears throat> It's true to say that if a few bricks here and there were taken out of this building, no one probably would notice too much. But if week by week several big bricks were taken away, what would happen? This building would crumble and fall, wouldn't it? And likewise, when one truth here and one truth there is denied or, or ignored, it may not be noticed too much to begin with, but as it goes on, eventually that church and its testimony will collapse. Martin Luther used to say that the doctrine of, the, of justification by faith was the article of a standing or a falling church. And when churches get to that stage where they begin to deny justification by faith, then they lose their testimony as a gospel church. And the Lord here is exhorting us to hold fast in these times. Don't compromise. Love the truth. Love Christ with the truth. Seek to honor him and to magnify him and hold on to these things, earnestly contending for the faith once delivered 
to the saints. Well, our time has gone. We come back to where we began. There's a song that is to be sung. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. I hope you can see now why we are to sing this song, why it's important to us, why it moves our hearts. I trust in some measure we have been moved by this this morning. I trust we've been strengthened and encouraged by it. If we are members of this one true church, how blessed we are. As the old hymn says, in my heart there rings a melody, a melody of love. And there is such a thing as singing in our heart praises to God. No one else might know but we sing in our hearts. We live upon the truth. We, we feed upon the truth as this melody rings in our hearts. So we are singing then this song. In the, song, the, in the land of praise, we sing this song of praise to the Lord for all that he has done, all that Christ has accomplished, and all that he will yet do for his people. Now, finally, many years ago, I had occasion to travel to London by train a number of times. And I noticed when I got to St Pancras that there was scaffolding erected on the outside of the building, all covered in sheeting, and all the usual noises were there when building work is being undertaken. And that went on for a long, long time. But if you go to St Pancras station now, you find that the scaffolding's been taken down, the sheeting's gone, and you now see that glorious Victorian station building in, in its original pristine, pristine glory. And you see, the work of the Lord at the present time, it's work in progress, isn't it? There's a lot going on. The Lord is working through his people in the midst of toil and labor and sometimes confusion and the, the rage of sin and malice of the ungodly bank against the church. The Lord is building his church and one day it will be seen in all its fullness and all its glory. May God hasten that day.